Hi, everyone. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to another episode of the Cheeky Natives. You are with me, Letokonolo, and I'm always excited to be talking about books. And today we come bearing wonderful gifts. Uh, the conversation today will be extremely, extremely special. Um, but Dr. Slay, how are you doing? Look, I'm excited for today's conversation, so I'm great. Um, we had a beautiful event yesterday with Robert Jones Jr. And I, I think that this is just a continuation of all of that love and tenderness and vulnerability. And I, I can't wait to delve deeper into the prophets because this is literally, literally one of my favorite books of the year. And it's only March. And so with that, uh, we'd like to rob, uh, welcome Robert Jones Jr., who is a writer from New York City. He's received his BFA in creative writing and MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College. He's written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review. He's the creator and curator of the social justice, social commentary community, Son of Baldwin, which has over 230,000 followers across platforms. And now you know, like, I'm a diehard fan of James Arthur Baldwin, right? And, like, today we're going to be talking with someone who embodies so much of Baldwin's spirit uh, and just, you know, what Baldwin allowed us to think about and to constantly think about. So welcome to the Cheeky Natives, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. I love being around you too. So thank you. I think before we start the conversation, I want to bring Donnell more into the conversation here because I think it's such an important um, starting point. Donnell writes a memoir called No Ashes in the Fire, which in many ways does a, a lot of similar work that the prophet does in terms of asking us questions about larger structural problems, right? Thinking about the, the hegemony of, 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 of our lives. And Donnell writes, he says, this story is not new and my story is not unique. Black, queer, trans and gender non-conforming people in America are bearers of narratives of struggle and triumph, despite the ways intimates and strangers have attempted to force us to silence our sexual desires. Our stories, like our lives, are complex, bountiful, profound, disappointing, hopeful, varied and often disregarded. We've always been here. Black, queer, trans, and gender non-conforming people loved and fucked on some racist man's plantation. We wrote theories debunking white supremacist ideology. We too were the architects of black liberation, women justice, anti-war movements, and the black arts. We are the unnamed black sisters, brothers, and non-binary people who've lived queer theory before it was popular among those in white academia. And I think that's really what the prophet does, right? The prophet sort of takes us back in a moment in time and it says to us that we have always loved and fucked in some racist monsters plantation. We have always had theories debunking white supremacist ideologies. We've been architects of black liberation, women justice and uh, anti-war movements. And I think in many ways for me, the prophet sort of, and that's why I wanted to start there because the prophet sort of does that. It does a lot of work that we only believe nonfiction can do, but it does what we believe nonfiction can do so beautifully in fiction. And so the first question we have, Robert, is why was, we know that a lot of the, the, the essays you've written have been nonfiction primarily. Why was fiction sort of the mood that you chose in order to convey the message you wanted to uh, in The Prophets? That is a great question. Thank you for asking that. Because 
beyond the fact that I find myself uh, most comfortable in writing fiction, it is where um, I started my writing as a six-year-old. It is um, where I am trained as um, in terms of my education is fiction. But what fiction also does is something that Toni Morrison once said. She said, fiction is not fact, but it is truth. And in some ways, the facts can often get in the way of truth. She also said that. And fiction allows you to um, tell a story in a way in which the truth of our existence can be communicated in a way that not just enamors a human being, but it, it helps us to remember that truth in a way that nonfiction or facts don't often do. Um, so for me, fiction was the probably the only way I wanted to tell this story, although there are nonfiction ways to, to discuss the things that I'm discussing in this novel. I felt like fiction was the best place um, for me to do so because in addition to allowing me to tell the story, it also allowed me to imagine. And it's so boundless. There's no boundaries with imagination. And so um, that is why fiction is where I f- find most of my life. <laughs> I love that you said that about fiction, because I think that that's a running commentary that we have that, you know, fiction is people, people think of fiction as fluffy because it's, it's not real. Um, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, right? So the way that the book is written, the form of the book is very interesting. But also then to link that to a question about the biblical references that you make throughout the book, because there is a very meaningful way in which you use the biblical references in this book. I am essentially critiquing Christianity, in particular, uh, there are many other religions that I can speak upon, um, having grown up in a house that was half nation of Islam and half Christian. But this novel, its approach to Christianity is to look at it in the way in which it was introduced to us as Black people. Christianity is not, for most of us, is not an indigenous spiritual system. It is a system that we encountered when we encountered Europeans. Um, And it was generally given to us first as a means of trading with these European nations, and then as a means to subjugate us as Black people and enslave us. And so it was really important for me, particularly because when I was doing the research for this novel, I kept running into this idea that we as Black people didn't think of queerness as anything wrong or different until we encountered Christian missionaries and European colonizers. That I would have to then in some way reckon with that. Um, And one of the ways in which I do that is with names. Um, You'll notice that almost all of the characters in the book have biblical names. And that is to symbolize the ways in which we were stripped of our original names, our original cultures, and given Um, these entirely Christian names as a means of subjugation. Um, It was the way that white people said to us, what you were before doesn't matter. You used to be a person. Now you are a slave and you are a slave because my God says so. And so um, you'll notice that, but also chapter titles have the, the names of books of the Bible. And sometimes 
those chapter titles are a way, the chapters themselves are a way of re-examining um, the particular um, books of the Bible in a way that is more, um, I guess the best way to say it is more Black. Um, sometimes the, the book, the, the chapters are named after books of the Bible that were left out of the Bible um, as, a, as a means to sort of say, these are the stories that are left out of our cultural narratives. Um, and so Christianity is a foil in this book. It is, I am not celebrating it so much as I am examining and interrogating it. Um, particularly as it results, as it relates to anti-Blackness. I, I love that. And I also think you do something so beautifully with the names of the book, right? I think about the protagonist in the book. I think about Zion. I think about Samuel. When we think about it biblically, these are two kings, right? And kings that have wealth and wisdom. And uh, it was interesting for me to think about like how we're centering, like in the critiquing, or the examination of Christianity, there's also a, a bestowing of honor in some ways. Like, you you know, I read and I'm like, King Isaiah, okay, come through King Isaiah and King Samuel, come through, do the nasty. <laughs> and so I wanted to speak about that. I felt like often the characters of the book, uh, apart from King, apart from Samuel and Isaiah, like when you think about the, the the master who's Paul, sort of had really like similar characteristics to to Paul in the Bible. And you think about Amos and think about the characteristics that Amos embodied. And you think about Ruth and think about the... So I wanted to know about the picking of names. Was the names also symbolic of tiny bits of the characteristics that you find in these stories, uh, in the exploration of Christianity? Yes, um, oftentimes I pick names that um, my characters could sort of represent in a sort of new way the character in the Bible. So, for example, Maggie is Mary Magdalene. That is where her name comes from. And she was, you know, the one that knew that who Christ was and who stood by, stood, stood by his side no matter what, Um despite the fact that people were throwing stones and, and um, Christ protected her as a result. Um, so Maggie is a reworking in a sense of the Mary Magdalene story. Um, and the same is true, like you said, for Paul, who um, in the Bible, Paul is a very unlikable character. He's um, dogmatic and misogynistic and homophobic and um, really it's it's strange to think that he is um, one of Christ's disciples um, because he's he's so oppositional in his understanding of Christ's message. So yes, in many senses, these characters are um, in some way speaking to or sometimes complicating or speaking against the characters that they're named after in the Bible. 
I, I love that you've actually spoken about Maggie because I wanted to explore the the women of MC a little bit more. I think that in many ways you delivered multifaceted people, which is true to the nature of humanity, right? That nobody is ever only one thing. But I also felt that you explored the facets of black womanhood in these characters. So I think of Pua and how Pua represents black girlhood and innocence. And I think of, um, for example, Essie, who's experienced sexual violence and assault and is trying to find meaning in, in that space. And so I wanted us to just talk a little bit about the black women of, of, of empty, right? Because in many ways, they are the sites of, of rebellion. They are the sites of coming to, but they're also the sites of vulnerability and tenderness in, in ways that make us think deeply about love and what love looks like. You know, whenever I'm writing about a character that has an identity that I don't share, so a woman character, it is vitally important as me who is not a woman to make sure that I do everything in my power to make sure I'm getting this right. Um, but for um, I don't want to be one of those people who obliviously thinks, oh, I'm a writer, I can write about anything. And, and I write people and then they're not fully dimensional and they're stereotypical or they're even offensive to the, the people that they represent. So I did a ton of observation and listening um, to my mother, to my sister, to my aunts, to my cousins, um, to the elders in my family. I, I excavated my memory to, to remember the elders who had passed, who are now my ancestors, um, the women. Um, read a lot of feminist works, um, read a lot of works by Black women writers to ensure that what I was crafting, these characters that I was crafting, um, felt real and full and human and dimensional, and that, like you said, Alma, that they weren't just one thing. Um, because so often, Black women get, you know, this thing where they have to be the strong Black woman, or they are the loose Black woman. And like, why can't they be strong, loose, vulnerable, happy, sad, joyful, all of these things together? Because isn't that the equation that makes us human? So when I was approaching these characters, and it was never any doubt in my mind that the women characters in this um, book would have to play a prominent role, I, I said to myself, I have to write characters that my mother could be proud of that my sister could be proud of, that Toni Morrison could be proud of. Um, that is how I'm thinking in my head as I'm writing these characters. And it took time. I had to read and revise and let uh, uh, my sister or my mother or somebody read it and say, you know, is this, am I close? Um, and fix it when I was getting it wrong. It, you know, cause I don't, you know, I don't purport to be the know-it-all of, of human experiences that are outside of my own. So, you know, I ask for help when I feel like I, I need it. I ask for somebody to um, be a, a second pair of eyes to tell me if I'm getting something right or wrong. And so um, it was vitally important for me to include Black women in this since so many Black women have been um, literary influences for me. We're taking a short break.
Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. I mean, just to expand a little bit on that, because there's a character for me that I think it would be remiss if we didn't speak about, and it, it would be B. Auntie Beulah, right? Um, because B. Auntie Beulah inhabits these multiple consciousnesses, right? Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a skillful thing that you've done there that I want us to just speak about, because what does it mean to have to be a B auntie and be a Beulah as well and to inhabit all of those different consciences is for me very interesting. You know, one of the things I thought about is the ways in which Black women survived these travesties. One of the ways they survived it was by um, sort of acquiescing to the oppressor's demands, hoping I can maybe survive if I just do what this person says. You often hear um, survivors of, of um, sexual assault or rape talk about the ways in which they said, my body shut down. I just said, let me get it over with so that you know he, he does what he does and, and then I can get away. And I was thinking about that when I was writing Beulah Bianti, how she starts off as Beulah. She's this whole woman who knows exactly who she is. And then the beating down from the two Bob, but not just the two Bob, but also the black men turns her into the Bianti where she is now like, okay, this is the only way I'm going to survive. And then we have that moment later in the end when she snaps back into herself and she goes, Okay, you know, okay. And so um, Bianti, um, she's one of my favorite characters in the book because she, she gives me and the reader and the, uh, even maybe the other characters insight into what a Black woman has to go through, what she has to endure, what she has to turn herself into just to endure the patriarchy, you know? So, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that character. And she's also really fascinating for me because before coming into herself, she sort of wants to, you know, recruit people into the patriarchy. <laughs> um, I think often about like, we, we, we talk about the black girlhood and how poor is just the representation of black girlhood. And from any age, poor is constantly been trying to strip off her innocence. Right. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, be auntie, seems to be envious, you know, of, of, of this little girl who's just so innocent and doesn't know what the world will, can do to her. You know, so there's, it seems also a juxtaposition of a life that Bianchi could have had that she sees in Pua, but a life that she says, Pua, this isn't realistic because the world patriarchy, mm. slavery demands that we become these things, right? So I also really enjoyed the sort of, 
intentional and unintentional juxtaposition of this black girlhood and this black womanhood in a plantation and how innocence on the one hand and the one side and not innocence and harm on the other side and how those two things can exist in a place like MT. It, it was um, one of the most fascinating relationships for me in the prophets is that relationship between Bianti and Pua um, in that some of that, I was talking to my sister, some of that comes into um, contemporary times where you have older black women who see younger black girls and they go, she's fast or she's grown. Or um, I, I remember when the whole R. Kelly controversy started to kind of really bubble over. There were so many black women who, whose position was those girls should have knew better and not what is wrong with this man going after these 12, 13 and 14 year old girls. And that dynamic sort of plays out in Bianchi and, and Pua. And what I think that is, is that the oppressed person, sometimes oppressed people feel like I can't beat the oppressor. So I'm gonna take it out on the other oppressed. And so that is what they wind up doing. So I can't stop R. Kelly, but I can, I can chastise these girls because we're, we're, we're more equal in power, whereas R. Kelly has more power than me. And that is one of the most heartbreaking things of oppression. Someone once told me long ago, oppression doesn't teach people to be better people. It teaches them how to oppress. And I, to this, to this day, that remains with me because so often it seems to be true. I think that that's such a powerful, powerful way to, to, you know, to think about it, because I also think of the ways I think that B, Auntie and Bula drew sympathy from us as readers, right, for older black women who I think I think that the instinct is to feel like this woman is oppressing me, et cetera, et cetera. But there is no sympathy for the kind of ways in which black women have been traumatized themselves, right, and the ways in which that trauma plays out. And I think that what she did was so powerful to demonstrate, yes, there's a frustration and tension in their relationship, but there's also a call to sympathy for you as a reader to think about what the women our mother's ages may have experienced and how that may have shaped the ways in which they navigate they navigate this world, right? Because my grandmother didn't have a word for patriarchy. She didn't have a word for that kind of oppression. But that the fact that the word wasn't there doesn't mean that the experience didn't exist. And and I think that I one thing that I really was curious about and something that I think was a central theme in the book was the idea of personhood and what it means to skirt the peripheries of, of personhood and to not be seen as a person, even though you yourself recognize yourself to be a person. And what does it mean to exist in a world that doesn't see your personhood, even though you are so acutely aware of it? it, it what it does to you is it makes you incredibly angry. You're both angry and sad, and you're, you're likely to act out of those two places. Um, and anger and sadness can lead us down roads that are destructive or self-destructive. Um, and the, the paradox of it is that, so our humanity is being snatched away from us, or, or they're attempting to, to say that our humanity, we don't have a humanity. So that makes us act a particular way. And then we act the way in which they say, "Uh aha, see, you are not human. Um, But really the the not human in that situation is the person trying to take away my humanity. Um, That is what white people 
sad to say, but true to say, don't seem to understand about racism is that I'm not the beast in that paradigm, in that um, institution. The person who creates the racism is. And as Baldwin say, says, I'm not the nigger baby, you are. Um, so they have to reckon with that. Um, and part of the frustration, part of the, fr the frustration for us as black people, people of color and other marginalized people is that whiteness prevents that. It prevents people from seeing their history, self-reflecting, growing. Um, Baldwin talked about all of this, about how whiteness preserves and, and sort of um, freezes in amber um, innocence. So no matter what white people do, they think they are innocent, no matter what they do. Um, and that is going to be their downfall for sure, but I hope it is not also ours and they don't take us with them. But um, having been denied your personhood, the only thing that can restore it is love in its most radical form, which is why queerness is such an important identity because in that identity, you find the most radical kinds of love. Could you imagine two women in love with one another, two men in love with one another, people who have rejected the gender binary altogether in love with each other? Um, that is such a radical form of love that this world, um, the, the Western world has never seen. We know our ancestors have already seen this kind of love. Um, and it is, it is a return to this sort of radical love that is the thing that will restore personhood. And the problem is the opposite of love is fear. And so many people fear it. And so far fear is prevailing. And I'm just waiting for the moment that love will. I love that. I also wanted to speak about, I think what you do so beautifully in the prophets is that you create agency even in places where agency is not possible because we're thinking about these slaves who are slaves. So they're property, they're not considered people. But even in these conditions, there's a form of agency. And I want to look at sort of three characters in the book that you know seem to um, show that. I think the relationship between Isaiah and Samuel is, tr is just a literal sense of agency, right? Here are these people who have been stripped of whatever, but in the, in the quiet, in the silence, in the darkness, they are able to flourish and just allow themselves to be themselves. And then there's also my favorite, Maggie, who Maggie in many ways is like someone that I was rooting for throughout because I felt that Maggie knew what was going on is like, but I, I'm going to take what's mine. I, I, I'm, I'm going to take what's mine, you know? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So I wanted to speak about that, the idea of agency in places where agency shouldn't exist, right? And existing in a form of, uh, of queerness and in a form of Black womanhood. Um, one of the um, most beautiful forms of agency for me in the book is the love between Samuel and Isaiah, particularly their love making, because what a risk they're taking on this plantation um, to not only love each other, but to love each other's bodies on a, on a, 
in a place where it, they're told that their bodies are machines and that all their bodies are good for is production. But they have taken this um, piece of autonomy for themselves to say, no, this body is also for pleasure. On, under my auspices, I get to say when this body is used for pleasure and I give it to the person to whom I please. Um, and so that is um, one of the remarkable parts for me um, when, when I was writing this book, thinking about the ways in which that shows up as agency, that even in, in slavery, they found this. And then, as you said, with Maggie, Maggie rebels on even the cellular level. She refuses um, to hate herself. She loves her body. She loves the way she looks, her skin. She says, they will not make me hate this. Um, she puts stuff in their food. She, she, there's this scene in the book. My favorite. I'm just like, Maggie, put some more. Like, put some more. I hate these people, put some more. Yeah, like that diary is insufficient. We need more. We need him dabbling over in the hospital. There's a, a scene later in the book where Maggie... Um, I guess poisons uh, Paul, and he's running to the bathroom to the to the outhouse, and you know some people have read that scene as oh now you know she has to pay the price for what she did because she has to wipe his butt, but what people don't realize in that scene is that she already knew she would have to wipe his butt, but she's going to take as long as she possibly can to make him look like a fool. So her and Essie are, are playing him for a fool. They're, they're forgetting his clothing. They're running back and forth. They're taking their time. And he's standing there with his pants down, doo-doo on his behind, and like saying, what's going on here? And then at the end of that scene, he starts to sense, I'm standing and they're on their knees, but why do I feel like I'm kneeling? Because they were playing you. First of all, they put you in that situation, and then they took as long as they possibly could to get you out of it. So they were, they were playing you twice. That's why you feel like you're on your knees. So in those ways, which are hidden underneath subservience, which is how our ancestors did it. They had to pretend to be um, subservient and bowing and such. But underneath that was the rebellion. And Ma Maggie's one of my favorite characters. By the way, Maggie almost took over this book. This book was almost about Maggie. That is how forcefully this character was coming to me. Um, but she is one of the ones whose strategies I find to be just brilliant and the way she um, claims herself and the way she claims vengeance. I loved the, that scene particularly because, I mean, when uh, he runs to, to the outer house and he says, uh, bring me a bucket and bring me a cloth, right? And only a cloth comes. And then much later on, the bucket comes. I love that so much because I'm like, you know what? This is what you deserve. Actually, you deserve, you deserve much, much more than this, but this is what you deserve. And I like the fact that, like, even in Maggie's... I, I think for me, Maggie as a character is someone who exhibits radical love. Um, and I love that about Maggie. I love that Maggie in her rebellion was also rebellious in the way that she loved because she was one of the only people in the book who was like, leave Isaiah and Samuel alone, right? Like, let, let them be. And that sort of radical love in a place like that was really remarkable for me. Like Maggie taught us so much about like just seeing people for who they really are and really seeing them. 
But doesn't Maggie also give you the sense of just being like unfuckwithable? I can't even think of a better word, but she is just unfuckwithable, right? It's like you just, they, you know, there are women who walk into spaces and you just know, like when people say I come alone, I make stand here alone, but I come as 10,000, right? Maggie is one of those because Maggie also holds on to ancestral knowledge in this place that tries to strip her of those things. Maggie still continues to commune with the ancestors, right? And I, I think that there is there's something so powerful about the ways in which even though Maggie didn't have a direct link to her ancestors in the physical, there is all of this indigenous knowledge that she's held onto. And it also informs, right? Because that's what, what happens when people strip you of your identity. It also means that you walk into certain spaces and you almost feel like you have to cower. But Maggie refuses to do that. And there's just something so powerful about Maggie as a character, listen, I'm ready for her to have her own book. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk, now that we're talking about Paul, I think we can just talk about his low-down, raggedy-ass child, Timothy. <laughs> wow, Timothy is raggedy. Timothy is raggedy, and I'll tell you why I think Timothy is raggedy. I think that <laughs> Timothy is raggedy. <laughs> Timothy, for me, represents... He represents the, the 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 kind of white person who's problematic, right? Because they claim to to aspire or claim to have this white liberal way of thinking where you you claim that you are not racist and you know that you are privileged. And yet you continue to behave in very violent and very problematic ways. And so you have come to the mountain, you've received the knowledge, but you are so you're so attached to your privilege right since this idea of goodness the goodness that you hold because you're not like the others you continue to perpetuate the violence that the others that you speak of do and timothy is the perfect example of that right timothy takes the entire book to realize that the the enslaved people on his father's plantation are people that they have a soul that they have loved they almost have to prove their humanity to him he's been in the north he's been exposed but Beyond that, Timothy's held on to these problematic, raggedy-ass ways of being. And and just even the lack of consent, guys, I, I really, I could, I could write an essay about Timothy, right? Because Timothy stands for everything that's problematic about white liberals. Like, Timothy could be a white liberal in 2021, and we would not be shocked. Yes. He's raggedy. Um, it is so funny to hear Dr. Alma say raggedy. Uh, <laughs> He's raggedy. It's true. Because um, that is exactly what Timothy represents. Timothy is a bit of a complex character in that, okay, so he was raised racist. He was raised to be a racist, a white supremacist. He goes north and discovers there is another way to think about Black people and these things. And so he's reckoning and wrestling with these ideas that he, he grew up with and the, the new ideas that he's learning. So he thinks now that he's enlightened and that um, I'm so much better than my parents because at least I see you as people, but yet he still does harmful things. Um, and that is primarily how white liberals behave today. Black Lives Matter and all of these things they say, they, they, they say all the right things, but then when it comes time for the substantive parts of it, what are, what are you giving up? Because in order for black people to have something, you have to let go of something. So what you have to let go of 
is of this idea of whiteness being at the top of a hierarchy. We have to get rid of that. You have to give up your whiteness. James Baldwin said, um, not as long as you're white, because as long as you're white, I'm forced to be black. And what he was saying was, whiteness is the problem. You have to get rid of whiteness, which means getting rid of hierarchy, getting rid of racism, getting rid of this idea that you are, you are entitled to some sort of benefit simply for being. Um, and so Timothy is that. Timothy is, look at me how nice and kind I am. He is sort of my critique of the white savior. Um, yes. Because one, one of the things I, I wanted to do when I wrote this book, I said to myself, there will be no white saviors in this book. Um, in fact, I will talk about how poisonous and toxic that idea is in this book. So you may think at the beginning when you're reading Timothy, oh, he might be the one that sets stuff, stuff off on this plantation. And then you quickly realize, oh, no, he's not that dude. He's he's raggedy, and I, I'm so traumatized. I was telling Tokonolo, the most difficult things for me, well, the most difficult parts of the book, was to read the ways in which he coerced Isaiah, you know? And so when you think about, I think we're having conversations around sex and consent, but you think about whether he believed in his spirit that, like, Isaiah was consenting, right? He was well aware of the power differential, you know? And for me, that was one of the most difficult parts of the book to read because it spoke about the kind of sexual trauma and the assaults that enslaved people were, were, were experiencing on plantations, right? And, and then you think of people talking about Thomas Jefferson and he had a... And I'm like, do you believe that in that relationship that the person who's enslaved is able to actually give you consent and you are not coercing that pace, that person, right? And you know, also I think what is really dangerous about Timothy is baiting, right? So he's baiting these people with sort of this idea of freedom, right? So um, you think about the encounter between Samuel and Timothy and you think about how Timothy is effectively saying, sleep with me. And when my father is dead, because he's going to be dying soon, I'm going to free you. So hold on to this idea of a freedom that may not happen in order for me to just lay with you, right? One. Two, he's also the same person who's basically was like, if Samuel doesn't come, I'm going to be telling on y'all because I've seen what you do. You know, that's the racism, the, 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 well, the racism, but the very dangerous thing. And the third thing that like really bothered me about Timothy is that he's using these people to exploit his own sexual identity. So it's not like he is settled in himself. He sort of went to the North and in the North, he saw things. He was like, oh my gosh, this is possible. He started feeling particular things. He didn't know what those things were. And he knows coming from where he comes from, compulsory heterosexuality will mean that he needs to find a woman to continue this slave situation. But now he's saying, I know I have desires to be with men and I'm not going to do it in the North where people are doing it. I'm going to go to the plantation and I'm going to use these people, bait them with the freedom and use their bodies in order to give me pleasure. We, we see that in contemporary times. You ever go to a dating website um, and um, the white person will say, 
um, things like BBC. I'm looking for BBC, which is Big Black Cock. And oh, the disgust I feel when I see those sorts of things, because that's, what, that's all they see is us in, in body parts, not as a full human being. That, that still remains. Um, the ways in which people weaponize their identities still remains. Um, and so, yeah, you think about Timothy and the ways in which he um, baits Samuel and Isaiah with this idea of freedom. It's the way that white people bait us today with the ideas of equality. Um, here in the United States, um, Biden says, it'll take time. We, we have to move forward. You know, it's coming. You know, all of these things. The, the, every president, even Barack Obama, I'm sad to say, um, also, always this idea of black equality or equity will be here one day. You just have to vote. You just have to be respectable. You just have to do all of these things for something that's never going to come and that we're never going to give you. Look, you're speaking on it, okay? You're speaking on it. Because that, can I tell you that one of my favorite moments in the book is when that Nick, when Timothy dies, right? Like that, I'm just like, whoo, hallelujah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen. Because, uh, like, you, you deserve uh, but I Ugh. think there's also something so powerful about that scene in the book, Robert, which I must commend you on. We see Samuel in the book as this person with a hard exterior. You know, Pua is the one to identify that Samuel has this hard exterior. Isaiah is constantly pushing and pulling, pushing and pulling, and sort of creating space for this hardness. But there is one moment where we see the deep vulnerability in Samuel that like in that moment, I'm like, you know what, Samuel? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Because it's a moment where Timothy is trying to, you know, makes advances towards Samuel, right? And does it pejoratively in a sense that have you, have you've never laid on this bed? You, you don't know how soft it looks, like those types of things. But it is in that moment that Samuel realizes the only person I want here in this space, in this body, receiving joy and pleasure is Isaiah. And you, you do not get to get access to that. And just for that reason, I don't know the number of people who you've used, but I know for certain you coerced Isaiah into doing this. And for that reason, I'm a, you know, it's on. Oh, it's on. Uh, it's, it I'm felt like, like justice, right? It felt like, it felt like the deaths of like, a multi it was like a multi-generational debt that was being paid by timothy and his raggedy family and everybody who had participated in like just the trauma and the constant abuse of of these people on on, on empty right like that moment for me i was like yes do it again do it again because you know there's a thing about the ways in which we are expected to respond to violence right to violence enacted upon us and there's a thing about respectability and the ways in which we're expected to respond to violence that is enacted on us and we must always be better and sometimes better is me killing the person who was trying to coerce me in a pejorative way when he knows that he would never even even in daylight, stand up against his father and defend these two people whose bodies he feels like he has license to use. 
you preaching a word right now. Um, it is not for the oppressor to determine how the oppressed fight their battles. You know, it, it is always this idea of you should be peaceful. And then they use um, people like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. against us to say, oh, you do what Dr. Martin Luther King told you to do. But what about what Malcolm X told us to do? What about what Harriet Tubman told us to do? Um, so you, you don't get to dictate the, the terms by which we free ourselves from your grasp. You should not have your grasp on us. If you don't want to let go, then all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all bets are off, you know. Literally, uh, literally. I want to talk about King Akosua before we go, because I think that... <sighs> Guys, King Akosua was everything. You know, this book is a challenge to the idea of existing gender binaries, right? And I think it's so beautiful that you went back into our genealogy to challenge the idea that queer people have not always existed, right? That we've always had these rigid binaries. And you wrote against the silence in doing that. And so I want to talk a little bit about... King Akosua, but also Kosi and Ilewa, and why they were such important characters for you to write. When I was doing the research for the prophet, and I, I'm so glad that you read at the beginning that excerpt from Darnell Moore's work about we were loving and fucking on Massa's plantation, because that's, to me, the part that has been erased from everything. Darnell Moore is one of the smartest people I know. He is just brilliant and such a great orator and writer. Um, but those silences that I was trying to write against um, had to do with that. But I realized, but it doesn't begin here. Where, where does it actually start? This idea that the black queer, the black non-binary, the black trans exists. I found it in the oral histories on the continent. So Esther Arma from Ghana, she said, if you had asked my great grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would have said, oh, we don't know. We don't have this. And you would have walked away as a Westerner thinking, oh, they don't have any homosexuals in Ghana. She said, but if you had told them what homosexual meant, they would have said, oh, you mean love. <laughs> because for them, there was no reason to separate men loving men, women loving women from, from men loving women and women loving men. It was all love. And she said that for her tribe, for her village, for her people, love was like land. It had no boundaries. And so that is where I found the strength, the courage, and the foundation to write about King Akusa and her tribe, to, to write about um, Kotai and Alewa. Um, about the ways in which our African ancestors looked at gender and sexuality, sexuality and gender identity and um, family and love um, and all of these grand ideas, which were so different from everything I was taught as an American. Like, we grow up in this country thinking that whatever America says, the whole world bows to it. So if, if America says that gender is man and woman, then the whole world must believe that, that that is the case. And then to encounter this information that no, not in Ghana, not in Kenya, not in South Africa, not in Nigeria, these are not what they thought. Our ancestors did not think this way until white people came and forced these opinions upon them. That is such a freeing experience. It, opened my mind up 
imagine being able to talk to um on Son of Baldwin, the, the social justice site that I started, a black transgender woman from Zimbabwe telling me about her ancestral knowledge. That is such a freeing experience for me. And it gave me the courage to do the things that I'm doing in this book. King Akusa is her and Maggie, it's a tie for them who have stayed with me after the book has closed and who are desperately asking for me to write more about them. Um, and maybe one day, but I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. But King Akusa is one of the women in the book that I love the most. Um, she is strong and smart and wise, and her love is so big. She, uh, it, there's this one scene where she's sitting across from the missionary, and she she calls her wives to her to say, "Let him see what 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 love looks like because his love is so puny." Hey, and hey I, come I, on. <laughs> and that is one of my favorite scenes in a book. And I feel like it wasn't a scene that I wrote. I feel like King Akusa came to me and wrote this scene through her point of view. Um, and so um, I love her. I love her. I love her village. I love Semjula. I love her husbands, uh, her wives, um, who are, her wives are um, male, female, and other. And that is something that, here in the West, we were getting all confused. When I, um, a lot of Americans who read those chapters told me they had to go back and go, wait a minute, but you're using she pronouns for the king. Oh, the king is a woman. Um, because there's this automatic assumption that um, kings are men and that wives are women. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was a, um, the, 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 the pre-colonial African chapters of the book are some of my favorites. And I really love the pre-colonial chapters of the book because I think that what you're trying to do with those pre-colonial chapters is not to romanticize pre-colonial Africa because often that's what people think we're trying to do when we excavate. But it's this idea of long memory, right? You're trying to say that Black ancestry, Black queer ancestry has always existed, right? And if it isn't existing in your European archives and your European books, it must exist somewhere. And as you say, right, oral tradition, you know, Sindhu Makona is a South African author and she writes a book called Mother to Mother. And in the beginning of the book, she says, I'm writing this book to you because ours is a tradition of oral traditions, but I'm not sure how long I'm going to live. So I need to put these words down in a book so that you are able to know where you come from, what you ate, what our childhoods were. And I think in many ways, that's what you do with the, with the pre-colonial chapters. You, you, you're sort of telling us in a long memory that like we have always been here. We may not be in your imagination and in your books, but we, we have always been here. And you, it, it, it ties up so beautifully because in many ways, it also shows us what Isaiah and Samuel's love could look like in a different time uh, if there was freedom. Yeah, um, I certainly intended for um, Kosai and Alewa to act as a sort of a precursor to Samuel and Isaiah so that you, could, so that you can see, see how it is when it's just Blackness as we understand it as African diasporic people versus Blackness as it's been taught to us by white supremacy what is possible in those two paradigms. Um, the minute um, whiteness involves itself, 
what bec- what what it becomes that is sort of the message there yeah i want to talk about hope um and i think we had a discussion about it yesterday but this book is such a hopeful book you know and i think we often shy away from writing black historical fiction because although all of our history is true, remembering a lot of it is painful. Um, And although we need to remember everything, we can't celebrate everything because of so much of what's happened to us. And I think Emmanuel Achio said that, right? Um, And I want to talk about how hopeful this book is. This is a book full of hope. And I want to know why that was for you. I think of Baldwin um, when they asked him if he was a pessimist or an optimist. And he goes, well, I have to be an optimist because what do you tell the children? And, and that is very meaningful for me because I see the wages of what happens when we don't tell the children um, what children become. Particularly white children. Um, you see, wh- whiteness is a hopeless place. And so what we see is um, when these young white men go into elementary schools and kill babies, what we're seeing there is that hopelessness in action. Um, And the prophets um, cannot perpetuate a hopelessness that I tie strictly to the idea of white supremacy, to capitalism, to patriarchy. Um, it, It has to be if it's moving against all of these other narratives um, in the way to put the black queer person back into um, a scene from which we've been erased, it also has to move against the hopelessness of whiteness. And I had to ensure that all of these characters um, don't have happy endings. Um, Some of the endings are left up to the reader to interpret, but the push of the book um, through Maggie, through Samuel, through Isaiah, through um, Kosai, um, through King Akusa. The push of the book is one toward rebellion, um, toward liberation, which then means toward love. And love is another word for hope. And so um, at the core of the book is love. And then at the edges of it, what surrounds that love is the idea of hope, that um, only through love, whether that be self-love or love of one another, and in the most radical ways possible, which is, for me, inside the idea of queerness. Queerness frees us to love in in these radical ways. That is the only hope for us as a species. That is the only hope for us because that radiates outwards. We love ourselves. We love our, our others. We love our environment and our community. We love the world so that we don't continue poisoning, poisoning it or being toxic to it and to each other. That is what is at the core of this book. And that's why it had to be there. Robert is so, so wise. <laughs> I wanted Thanks. to read um, a little bit from how we fight for our lives. And um, because reading all, all this queer work together really makes us see like how how much queerness can give us and Mm. how much you do with queerness in the book. So we think of queerness only as people being in queer relationships, but the prophet in itself is queerness because it it speaks about reimagining. It speaks about in many ways, a world not yet here. 
you know. Um, so Saheed writes, he says, a year later, I was in an MFA program at Rutgers, New York. I had gotten in, I'd kept writing, I'd escaped and survived, and I'd proven to myself and to others that I could do it. Yet still, so much inside me kept rolling, half contained like a dam waiting to burst. I was in a coffee shop one afternoon at my favorite corner table with a pile of books in front of me. I'd come here as often as I did to read, to take notes, to revise poems before walking to campus. The storm in my chest started all the way the storms do. I exhaled then inhaled, but there was little less air in my lungs than it had been before. I exhaled, inhaled again, even less air this time. Looking up from my book, I scanned the shop, hoping no one had noticed the panic attack quickly taking hold. Exhale, inhaled. My poetry workshop was in a couple of hours. Exhale, inhale. And I think this is significant. I had just highlighted a sentence in Reginald Shepard's essay I was reading about why he writes or why he had written. He writes, my aim is to rescue some portions of the drowned and the drowning, including always myself. And that has stayed with me. But when I read The Prophets, I I want, this is something that constantly was in my mind, right? That in your aim of writing this really amazing historical fiction, whether your aim was to rescue portions of the drowned and the drowning, including always yourself. I I wanted to ask about that, the idea of, what, what does the prophet mean to you, Robert, right, as, as, as writing about people who've been erased from history and who are still continuing to be erased today, who it sort of feels like as queer people, we have to marshal in and fight always to be remembered. We think about a Baldwin, we think about an Audre Lord. Like when we speak about Baldwin, we speak to, uh, about him as this great essayist and this great um, critical thinker. But many times, in many instances, we have he raised Baldwin's queerness. We have, it just doesn't exist. And so I wanted to know in writing The Prophets was the aim, you know, to um, rescue some portions of the drowned and the drowning, including yourself. That is one of the most beautiful quotes I have ever heard. That, that mercy, that was great. Um, and I suppose that in some ways I am attempting to rescue the drowned and the drowning. Um, as soon as you said that, I think about the last chapter in which we see Kosai and um, his um, action. I won't spoil it for people, but his, the action he takes in that chapter. And I'm thinking about the drowned and the drowning and thinking, is writing about that a way of pulling them up out of the water and giving them their proper burial? Is it a way of throwing a life preserver to those that are still splashing around? And maybe it is in my small way, um, in some small way, it might be a way to do that. But wow, what a way to think about that. I, I will be thinking about that quote now for days because that was just, that was so profound. Um, what To answer your question about what this book is for me, um, it is the most honest thing I could possibly say to other Black people. That is what it is for me. Um, and from that honesty, I would like us to sit with each other and break bread and turn to our Black transgender sister and say, as Maya Angelou once said, and mean it, good morning. 
we, we should no longer be torn apart by these petty differences that have been given to us by white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. As it sits back and watch, watches us fight over the scraps, fight over each other, um, do harm to one another in ways large and small. The Prophets is my effort to offer um, a bomb and a means of communication by which we can finally, finally see each other as whole and as one. This has been such a beautiful, nourishing conversation. I mean, I can so see The Prophets as a movie, like, or like a series, <laughs> like uh, Roots Vibes. Um, tell us a little bit more. Is, is there something in the works for that? Yes. Um, the, I'm meeting with producers who are interested in turning the profits into either a major motion picture or a prestige limited series. Um, so my, my film agent and I and my lit agent and I were all sitting down and talking with these um, producers who are really, really interested. And I'm, I'm just like, wow, in turning this into um, a movie or, or a TV limited series. And I'm very excited about the prospect. I, I had conditions and I made my conditions very clear up front. I said, please remember that when casting this film, all of the characters in this book are black, dark skinned black people. So don't tell me you wanna cast Tessa Thompson as Pua <laughs> because Pua is black as coal. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, colorism is a really big issue here in the United States. Is it, is it also in South in Africa? South Africa? <laughs> yes, it's quite a big, big issue as well. So, um, I don't think you can why, be touched by whiteness and escape colorism. Um, it, it is um, a big deal here. And um, dark skinned black women get it the worst. Yes. Um, and so I, I, I was, I'm very clear with all of the producers I'm talking to that we have to be culturally competent when, when approaching the, the adaptation of this book, because this book has very clear intentions and those ten- intentions have to translate into whatever form you wish to turn it into. So hopefully um, within the next couple of years, you might see a Profits film or Profits limited series. I'm already, I'm ready. I am so ready. I'm so ready. Um, I wanted to talk about two things um, before we ask you to read. One is to talk about the academic work that the prophet does. I think we, we, we tend to shy away about like, this is just not fiction. This is actually queer theory. And, uh, a lot of care work, I think often about Christina Sharp and I think about Brittany Cooper who speak about, you know, um, care work is not really necessarily just writing about people for the sake of writing, but it's sitting down and asking us the questions about who these people are, where these people have been and what they can offer us in their own words. And I wanted to speak about that, just like sort of where you see the prophet you know, what type of care work do you think the prophet is doing? And did you mean for it to do care work? And then I want to talk about pleasure. I think it's so important for us to talk about the delicate 
tenderness with which you wrote the consensual sex scenes in the book. I think it's often so important because it's rehumanizing because these people in this context, in this book are dehumanized. So there are people and love is capable for them as Timothy says in the book. And you demonstrate that so well when you write the sex scenes, you, you're so delicate. And I wanted to know about that, just your thinking around writing. But also, also to add to that, the normalcy with which he writes the, the sex scenes, right? So you are just reading about two people who are in love with each other, who are having sex and who just happen to be men. And there's just something so powerful about the ways in which it was written with care, but also with normalcy, right? That this is a normal way of having sex that isn't scandalized and made to seem other. Um, that's correct. And in terms of the care work that went into this, I, I'm not really familiar with that term outside of um, Dr. Brittany Cooper, um, her use of it. Um, and I am not by any means an academic, certainly not on the level of Dr. Brittany Cooper, who I adore. Um, but what I, what my intention was as an artist, as a writer, was that I give these characters their full weight their full worth um, and their full dimensionality as, as living. I had to think of them as alive, as living people, that they were not just representations of life, but they were life itself. Um, Toni Morrison um, once said that she, she was accused of making her um, characters larger than life. And she said, I, I rebuke that because I think my characters are as large as life and life is large. And I'd like to think in those terms that um, Samuel and Isaiah and Maggie and Pua and all the rest, um, they're breathing. Um, and I have, to, I have to be gentle with their breath. Um, I have to be honest, but I also have to be gentle. And that's where the care work is because um, these characters are not just representing themselves. They're representing our aunties, and our uncles, and our ancestors, and our, our siblings, um, they are um, speaking for the people who, whose, whose voices have been silenced. Um, and so what has to go into that is deep, deep meditative thinking. Um, and I often meditated when doing this work because of that. Um, I had to really, really think about it. And then um, to Dr. Alma's point about um, uh, the, the, the sort of natural way in which this love is approached. Yes, it is, um, as um, Esther Arma said, it is part of the landscape. Samuel and Isaiah have loved each other since they were boys. Um, that is something that heterosexuals and cisgender people can't comprehend sometimes, that um, queerness and transgenderness is something that's with you from, from birth, that you feel it on the inside, you just don't have the words to tell people what it is. You, but you know, I was three years old when I knew that I liked other boys. I didn't know that there was a word for it until I was about six or seven years old, but I knew intrinsically from, from young who I was. And so Samuel and Isaiah also know from when they're young who they were. They don't, they don't have the, the sophistication to understand what those feelings mean and how those feelings will evolve as they get older, but they have already felt natural to one another. And so 
that love also feels natural to one another. And that had to be represented against the grain of the heterosexist gaze, which always says something like, um, but how do you know you're gay? Or um, they say, um, what age, how old were you when you thought you were gay? And if you tell them something, how could you possibly know when you were young that you were gay? Because you, they're not even thinking, well, how did you know you were heterosexual? Um, they, they don't think of it that way because they think of us as you're supposed to be cisgender and heterosexual, but something bad happened to you to make you something other. And they're wrong. And so the prophets is, is writing against that, that concept that um, we're, something wrong happened to us or something traumatic happened to us to make us this way. No, this is who we are and who we have always been. Mm. This is who we are and this is who we've always been. Church, like we can actually just close churches. Church is done. We have been taken to church and back. Come on, okay. come on. Hallelujah. Like I don't know. I don't know how you do it there, but with us, if you are in church and there's a sermon that is just blowing your mind, what you do? Oh, I can't even find my wallet. You would be opening your wallet and just throwing money at the person. You listen, listen, like. All right. <laughs> Take your um, before, money. Take your uh, money. Before we end um, this wonderful conversation, may we please ask you, Robert, to read from the prophets, um, just so that our listeners, you know, uh, get a taste of the beauty. Absolutely. I will read from the first chapter that we meet um, Samuel and Isaiah. It is called Psalms. <laughs> July had tried to kill them. First, it tried to burn them. Then it tried to suffocate them. And finally, when neither of those things were su was successful, it made the air thick like water, hoping they would drown. It failed. Its only triumph was in making them sticky and mean, sometimes toward each other. The sun in Mississippi even found its way into the shade so that on some days, not even the trees were comfort. And too, there was no good reason to be around other people when it was hot like this, but longing for company made it in some ways bearable. Samuel and Isaiah used to like being around other people until the other people changed. In the beginning, they had thought all the curled lips, cut eyes, turned up noses, even the shaking heads, signified a bad scent emanating from their bodies because of the toil in the barn. The odor of swill alone had often made them strip bare and spend nearly an hour in the river, bathing <laughs> daily, just before sundown, when the others were bent out of shape from field work and tried to find an elusive peace in their shacks. There Samuel and Isaiah were, scrubbing themselves with mint leaves, juniper, sometimes root beer, washing away the layers of stink. But the baths didn't change the demeanor of the sucked teeth that held the two of them in contempt, so they learned to keep mostly to themselves. They were never unfriendly exactly, but the barn became a kind of safe zone, and they stuck close to it. The horn had sounded to let them know work was ending. 
a deceitful horn, since work never ended but merely paused. Samuel put down a bucket of water and looked at the barn in front of him. He took a few steps back so that he could see the entire thing. It needed a new coat of paint, the red parts and the white. Good, he thought. Let it be ugly so it could be truth. He wasn't going to paint anything, provided the Halifaxes didn't force his hand. He walked a little to the right and looked at the trees in the distance, the ones behind the barn, down by the bank of the other side of the river. The sun had dimmed and began to dip into the forests. He turned to his left and looked toward the cotton field and saw silhouettes of people carrying sacks of cotton on their backs and on their heads, dropping them off into wagons waiting in the distance. James, chief overseer, and a dozen or so of his underlings were lined up on either side of the constant flow of people. James's rifle was slung over his shoulder. His men held theirs in both hands. They pointed their rifles at the passing people as though they wanted to fire. Samuel wondered if he could take James. Sure, the two bob, the two bob had some weight to him and the benefit of firepower, but putting all of that aside, if they were to have a right tussle, fist to fist and heart to heart like it was supposed to be, Samuel thought he could eventually break him. If not like a twig, then certainly like a man near his edge. Whew. Listen. Whew. Hey. We could we could go on and I feel like we could have a five hour conversation about this book and still <laughs> not be done. But I think that it's really important for us to give to give you your flowers on oh. the podcast. I think that this has been such a beautiful transatlantic um but like spiritual conversation. I think that this has just been a meeting of the souls and of the spirits. And we're so grateful for the amazing work that the prophets has done and that it'll do in the future and, and the ways in which you've written against the silence and the ways in which you've written people into the archive. And we're so grateful for your time, but also grateful for the work that you've done on the province. Robert. <laughs> Robert. I know that I'm certainly going to count the prophets as one of the best books that I've read in my life. Oh my goodness. And I don't easily say this, but like Toni Morrison is a really important figure in my life. Audrey Lord is James Baldwin, Donnell Almore. And now Robert Jones Jr. has, has, has taken a place there. Because I think that what you do with the prophets is you allow us to see ourselves outside of the white imagination. You allow us to really sit deep within our blackness and to think about what our blackness means and how our blackness and love can be liberating. It's sort of a way, what you try to do with the prophets is to tell us, yes, there are moments of rebellion and we need to rebel, but let us never forget that we too are a people and the prophet is like that offering, you know, just to remind us that even before people thought we weren't, we were. So thank you really for seeing us in the way that you see us. And thank you for, 
for listening to the voices in the head, to the music, to the dreams. Thank you for honoring the ancestors by birthing the prophets. I think that it's going to go down as a book that we constantly think and talk about for what it has given us. So thank you very much, Robert. I, I must say that um, it is so um, invigorating um, to hear from my siblings on the continent. Um, above all others, I was very um, conscious of what my siblings in Africa would think of this work. And so I thank you for embracing it. I also um, want to say thank you for embracing me. Um, we are separated by an ocean, but it is my strong belief that we are joined by blood. Um, wherever we are on, on this planet, the African diaspora, we're joined by blood. And um, thank you so much for having me in this space. This has been an absolute pleasure and joy for me in so many ways, in so many ways. And I cannot wait until this pandemic is over so that we can all meet in person and break bread. Because I, I want to come to South Africa again so bad. And you are more than welcome to come to New York City, to Brooklyn. Um, so that we can see each other in person. This has been just so lovely. Thank you. Oh, yes, we look forward to coming to Brooklyn. It is it is high up on our list and we can't wait for you to come to South Africa. Um, and we think that this conversation will be even more beautiful in person over and over again. We're so excited. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to The Cheeky Natives. Please do go out and, and buy The Profits. It is available from The Cheeky Merchants, so definitely contact us. And we are more than we would be more than delighted for you to get a copy this is required reading for everybody everywhere like alma said don't dm the author asking for a pdf please get out and buy yourself a copy and if you want to support the cheeky merchant and robert jones jr you can do so uh, uh, by buying it from us the cheeky natives until next time farewell cheeky natives